morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Director of the Institute for Communication and Information Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. Today, we're coming back at you with another In Case You Missed It episode. This one is a really fun one from season three, where we were catching up with PhD alum who have graduated over the last 20 years. In today's episode, we catch up with Dr. Amy Tilly Rask, who is the COO of Media Science. So she's been working in the industry since she graduated from the University of Alabama. And she tells us all about her connections with the industry, the research that she does for huge media companies. And you may hear a few chickens in the background. It just adds to the fun. Definitely tune in. This was a great episode from the fall. Looking forward to catching up with you next week where we should have an actual new guest and a live episode. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us today for episode six of season three of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research and the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Volan, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. So, Kim, I have to ask you a question to kick off this episode, and that is, have you ever worked in the industry? And I'm putting <laughs> around the industry from our previous conversations. And here's a plug. Go back and listen to our previous episodes. Yes. That you have delivered pizzas in college. Um, by the way, I also learned the other night that Sean Penn's daughter also delivered pizza um, in, in her life. Um, Validated in that job. Right. <laughs> And I know that you have worked as a photographer and a photojournalist, and that, that would be the industry, right? Yes, that would be the industry. I also worked in television for a short while as an assistant pro- producer of a public affairs program that literally no one watched. Um, but it was a great experience, and I learned a ton about the way TV news comes together. So I've worked as a photojournalist, and then I worked in TV. Cool. So, I mean, I have to be honest, I've been a preschool teacher. I've been a tour guide in DC and I made it in retail um, for about three months once. <laughs> uh, both of us have had a side hustle in teaching group exercise. Yep. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't call that the industry um, for what I do now. So I guess I've worked in academia for the majority of my work experience. And today's guest, well, she took a different path after earning her PhD. That's right. Today, we talk with Dr. Amy Rask, the Chief Operating Officer at Media Science. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment. A COO. So Amy is the very first COO I've ever spoken to, and I find that very cool. And Amy is very cool, and this conversation is very cool. But yes, Amy is a COO. 
COO at Media Science, and we're going to learn more about her path to Media Science, what someone working in the industry does. And again, just a tiny spoiler here, she's still doing research, and it's really interesting and meaningful research. We're going to get a chance to learn more about how some of that research um, comes about and what it looks like in today's conversation. And one not just a researcher and, and a COO, but she also raises, manages, and takes care of, I'm not sure uh, the correct word, chicken. Um, and <laughs> even one of those chickens in today's episode. Amy, welcome to Revise and Resubmit. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Amy, um, we know that you are not uh, working at a university right now, and we'll get into that. But did I read it right that you were doing research in Australia uh, when your professional career was getting started? Yes. Yep. So that's actually, um, I did a postdoc, a postdoctoral fellowship at the, at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia, right after I graduated. And that has brought me around to my current position um, where I'm in Austin, Texas. So I'm no longer in Australia. I'm in the United States, um, but not in Alabama, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And and you got some puppies there? <laughs> I do. So, so one of my fun hobbies is breeding French bulldogs. Oh, so I currently have oh. six French bulldogs and a Boston Terrier who's the outcast. But uh, oh. yeah, I, I'm the type of person that I'm never busy enough. So I always look for other things to keep me busy. Um, and that includes animals. So we also have 32 chickens, oh. <laughs> which is why you might hear a rooster occasionally in the background because I'm sitting outside. Um, and we live on some acres just north of Austin. So We've got our little farm life that goes nicely hand in hand with my crazy professional life. Wow. Oh, you know, so I, I'll tell everyone. So I have a couple little puppies and when I adopted them, of course, they, uh, they don't adopt them to you until they're fixed. And I, I look at them now and I'm like, oh, these puppies, these two little puppies would make the cutest little babies. <laughs> Maybe I'm glad that that's not possible. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work, but it's fun. Gosh, so so much to talk about just there. Um, (laughs) But since you are not currently at the University of Alabama, we'd love for you to give us some basic information about who you are and what you do. We call this our rapid fire get to know you part of the podcast. All right, Amy. So first, where are you from and or where did you grow up? Um, So I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up there. Um, I went to the University of Montevallo for undergrad where I got to play volleyball. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, one of my marketing professors there told me about this amazing one-year master's degree that you could do at the University of Alabama in advertising and PR. And I said, oh, that sounds like fun because I have no idea what I want to do when I grow up. And I was graduating (laughs) from college. (laughs) And uh, so I looked into it and it sounded really neat. And, um, you know, I I got into it from there and 
in that program realized that I had a passion for research, which was really interesting because it took me, you know, a whole degree plus some to figure out that that was something I was passionate about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of my background. And, and currently I'm the chief operating officer at a company called Media Science that's based in Austin, Texas. Um, we have locations in Austin, Chicago, and New York, and then we also do online research as well. But it's a consum consumer neuromarketing research firm. Um, and I, I'm happy to go more into that later if you have questions. Oh, definitely. We will have many, many questions about that. Um, so I have to kind of follow up on something that you said just uh, a minute ago when you were thinking about, you know, you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life after getting through undergrad. When the young Amy was thinking about what she wanted to be when she grew up, what did she want to be? Like mm. college. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I've always had a love for animals. So there was one small part of me that wanted to do something with animals and go into marine biology or veterinary medicine or something. But I, I think my parents were always entrepreneurs and were always running small businesses. And I realized the value of, you know, running a business mm. and, and the value of marketing skills and business management skills. So I decided to go the business route so that I could help, you know, my family with, with business there. Um, so I ended up choosing a major that was in, in business management to start. And then, like I said, a, a few minutes ago, um, I had a marketing professor that was just really, she made marketing fun. And I realized that that connected something I was really interested in on like the psychology side, as well as, you know, advertising. Um, and that inspired me to change my major to marketing. And I still, you know, at that point, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that those were valuable skills to have. And I knew that that would help me be good at something. Um, and then it just, it kind of blossomed from there. I, I had these moments of inspiration at different points, you know, along that journey that helped direct me to end up where I am today. Hmm. But yeah, that's, that's but, very cool. So, and, and talk about just a, a, a little bit about you had a passion for research and, uh, I can, I can tell you that those phrase that I don't hear often. <laughs> so, <laughs> our listeners a little bit about about what what that passion is and and what that kind of how that developed yeah um you know <laughs> it probably goes back to my childhood um I remember when when I would have nothing to do you know we didn't have a million screens back then to keep us busy <laughs> I I would you know play with my toys and everything, but I would go and get cardboard boxes and I would devise these cardboard mazes for a mouse to go through and, and it would be complicated and I would set up these experiments and I didn't even have a pet mouse. <laughs> but I could envision what would happen if this mouse was in my maze and then, you know, like later on in life, I realized he probably could have just climbed over the edge of it and gotten the cheese. But... <laughs> I, I think like looking back, there were probably signs early on that I would have, you know, that I was going to be a researcher, you know, of some sort. And then, um, you know, later in, in school, I always loved science. I loved experiments in science and stuff, but still didn't realize that I had a passion for research going through that. And then um, I think probably in grad school, when I took a research methods course, that was really, it, it came really naturally to me. And I loved designing experiments. Um, and, you know, the idea of controlling for variables and things like that. 
Um, and I think that's when I started to realize this is really fun, you know, and that's, I want to do something where I can do research and get paid for it. And I think that's really neat. So, um, yeah, I think it started early, but I didn't realize that that's what it was back then. That's yeah, that's awesome. And, and I, I'm going to reiterate that, that it's not just, um, it's not just me that says research is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a few nerds out there like you. So you had mentioned earlier that the work that you do for media science is consumer neuromarketing research. Can you break that down for our listeners and just kind of explain what that is and, and the types of research that, that go on? Sure. Yeah, there's um, there are different ways I explain it depending on who the audience is. But since you guys <laughs> know about research a little bit, then um, I can probably be pretty straightforward. Um, we work with major media networks and, and major media related clients. So it can be, you know, anyone from Turner um, and, you know, they're launching their new HBO Max interface. So we're doing lots of research for HBO Max. It could be um, we used to do tons of research for Disney and ESPN, you know, looking at sports sponsorship marketing. That's all happening on the television screen. Um, And then, you know, over the years, that's all transformed to testing different types of devices and, you know, how those different advertising messages come through across different platforms and how to maximize those advertising formats um, and things like that. But I would say the the majority of what we do is around advertising, but sometimes it's about the media platforms themselves or the content. Um, You know, we test a lot of live sports. We do pilot testing for new TV shows. Um, so the topics are amazing um, and they really, you know, they're, they're really relevant to your day to day. You know, when you sit down and watch TV and, and I see something on TV that was informed by the research we did, it's absolutely amazing. And it makes me so proud of what we do. Um, and then the tools themselves, we have a, a toolbox where we have a lot of different neuromarketing tools. Um, so we do eye tracking and biometrics and facial coding and EEG Um, So we have a lot of different tools that we use to measure people's response to this content, you know, at an an implicit and explicit level. So we're able to look at things like their very precise visual attention when they're scrolling through a Facebook feed and they see an ad. You know, what did they pay attention to? And then how did they emotionally respond to that once they were exposed? And then later on down that pathway, how does that translate to memory for the advertiser? You know, our purchase intent, our attitudes towards that brand. Um, so it's, it's, it's all about, you know, that, that mediated message that's coming through on some sort of electronic or, you know, screen, electronic device or some sort of screen, um, and, and how people process that information and how that translates to persuasion. Wow. Okay. So many follow-up questions. (laughs) Um, but let me start with something you said that you test live sports. Um, so can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what that looks like? What are you, what are you testing? What are you trying to, um, measure in those sorts of scenarios? Yeah. So it depends, you know, it depends on who the client is and what the goals are of the research. Um, this past year we did some research for Fox sports and we were looking at the power of live sports. So when it comes to advertising impact, are advertisers better perceived and, you know, better remembered if they appear in a live sports broadcast where you're really engaged and you're really excited to watch that game and you're really, you know, emotionally invested versus 
you know, replays of, for, of a game or a rerun of that game that, you know, you saw later on are versus the same ads being placed in some sort of primetime content. Um, so a lot of times the questions center around the power of live sports on associated advertisers or embedded sponsorships. And then sometimes we test the games themselves and the broadcast themselves. So we did a ton of work for NFL over the years looking at the broadcast elements. You know, what are the things that are keeping people tuned in during an NFL game? And at what points are people getting disengaged and tuning away? Um, when are they getting bored and they're tired of watching the game? And how do, you, how do you maximize the elements within that broadcast to keep people tuned in, basically? Because the tune-in is what's important because that's where their advertising dollars come from. If they don't have an audience, then the advertisers don't buy this, the space. Um, so it's the questions vary, you know, but but the tools themselves and the way we're answering the questions kind of remain the same. You're just repositioning how you're how you're analyzing that data in order to answer specific questions. So talking about all of this research and then things like facial um, expression and eye sounds like super interesting. Um, are up to electrodes, that sort of thing? Is it is it scary research? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are people who are uncomfortable and probably would not participate in the research, but for the most part, it's very non-intrusive and non-invasive. Um, we bring participants into our lab. So we have state-of-the-art research laboratories in the, the three cities that I mentioned in Austin, Chicago, and New York. And um, we basically have viewing stations. We also have simulated living rooms, depending on, you know, what's more appropriate for the question at hand. And then once they sit down, we have remote eye trackers. So it's basically an infrared unit that's underneath this, the screen that's detecting their pupils and the placement in relation to the screen. So they're not wearing anything on their face. Um, for the facial expression coding, that's also um, artificial intelligence software that's marking key, uh, key, key locations on the face so that it can look at micro expressions and then translate that into emotional response. So that's being done with just a high definition camera that's also you know not touching the person. And then for the biometrics, we look at galvanic skin response and heart rate, and those are collected from electrodes or sensors. So we call them sensors for the participants because it's not as scary. Um, <laughs> but those are placed on the person's non-dominant hand, and then they just keep that hand in a comfortable position while they're... So unless we're doing EEG, that's the only thing that's touching them. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very, it's very non-invasive, and, you know, the person usually forgets that they're being recorded you know they do provide consent at the beginning but you know you would you would laugh at the the numerous you know instances of someone doing everyday things while they're being recorded and it's like they just forget they're being recorded I mean they might doze off and fall asleep they might pick their nose <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah we get we get good natural reactions even though it's in an artificial environment Okay, so again, many follow-up questions, but let me go, let me follow up on this idea about participants, because most of our listeners are going to be coming out of an academic world where things like IRB, mm -hmm. um, IRB and B are not our favorite phrases, <laughs> um, and 
certainly when you think about hooking participants up to anything, even if it's not invasive, for us in the academic world, that can be a pretty labor-intensive process, getting IRB <laughs> approval. What is it like in, in your world? Um, I think that was one of the most relieving things I realized <laughs> when going into this area of research is that we don't have an IRB or an ethics committee that we have to get approval from. Um, as an industry body, we still have basic standards, you know, and we try to hold ourselves to high standards when it comes to getting informed consent, you know, and making sure that, that participants are safe and that they understand exactly what's happening. Um, there's also legal implications. You know, you need legal consent from them to hook them up to these things so they can't come back and say that, you know, what we did erased their brain power or something. <laughs> I mean, there's some, some crazy things that come up. Um, but that being said, we can turn around the, the planning and prep for a study in, in 24 hours or less. If, if a client calls us and they have an emergency and they're like, hey, this news broadcast just aired, you know, we, we need to test people's response to it this was important for our industry, this is important for our company, we need results tomorrow. Then we have the ability to design that experiment, recruit the participants, run them in 24 hours, and then spit out the data and the results without having to get approval from anybody. So it's pretty magical that we don't have to work with IRB, even though, you know, the IRB is very valuable. It's, it's looking out for the best interests of participants and making mm -hmm. sure, mm -hmm. you know, that we're keeping everybody safe. But as long as you know, we're operating ethically and following similar standards, then we're basically approving the procedures ourselves. Wow. But the idea of turning a study around and collecting data in 24 yes. hours, yes. that seems pretty magical. <laughs> it is. It's impressive. And I mean, it's no small feat because we have a lot of departments within our team where you've got someone who's in charge of video editing, you've got someone in charge of software programming, someone in charge of recruitment, someone in charge of the data coding, someone in charge of analysis, someone in charge of project management. So you've got all of these moving parts that have to work really beautifully together to pull that off, but it's doable and it's fun. You know, those are the things that energize me, you know, those types of challenges and figuring that out and making it work and actually pulling it off. All right. Question. I feel like we always have like this idea that we're going to ask like 45 questions and then, <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, what I want to know is <clears throat> that you have seen like your, like your research, like come to life and, and seen the, the outcomes of your research. Can you ever take your research off? Are you always thinking like? I'm so sorry that the question part of that broke up. I don't know if it was my Wi-Fi signal. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's. I think it was me. So, okay. so what I'm what I'm interested in knowing is, can you ever take your research hat off? Mm. Like, do are you always like? oh, this could be a study, or I wonder what the response <laughs> to this is, or things like that. Do you ever get to just, like, enjoy <laughs> media? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think that's, like, a twofold question. So I feel like in life, it's important to have balance and be able to take your research hat off and focus your energy on things that are not data. 
Um, and that's why, for instance, I have seven dogs and 32 <laughs> chickens <laughs> and two kids and we stay busy, you know, so I'm able to separate that part of my brain from these other things that fulfill me, you know, personally. Uh, uh-huh. But when it, when it comes to media, you know, when I'm sitting back and relaxing, unfortunately I have to admit, like I can sit back and enjoy things, but in the back of my mind, I'm always noticing like, Oh, we should study that. I should reach out, <laughs> reach out to them and let them know that we could answer this question for them. Or like, if I see something poorly done, I'm like, Oh, we should reach out to that client and let them know that they should, they should improve this. <laughs> so, but that's, I think that's just ingrained in me after doing this for so long that that just comes natural. I'm always looking for some sort of experiment that I could do. Mm. <clears throat> so I want to um, ask you a question and it, and you can think about this in terms of the studies that you have been directly involved with in terms of data collection or data analysis or studies that media science has done kind of across the board. But if you had to come up with a headline for what you consider to be a really interesting finding, what would that headline be? Hmm. You know, there are so many interesting headlines that come out of what we do. Um, I think one of the more impactful studies that we did, I remember presenting it at an industry conference one year. Um, it was when the the industry, the television industry was switching from those traditional tube televisions to HD TVs. You know, so mm-hmm. everyone used to have these big box shaped TVs. I don't know if you guys are mm-hmm. <laughs> old enough to remember mm-hmm. those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then everyone switched to these HD flat panel. And at the time, ESPN had to transmit two different signals. So they actually had two different setups that were costing them millions of dollars a year to transmit both an SD version and an HD version of their content because they wanted to be able to suit both types of TV customers. Mm -hmm. And we conducted research to show them that if they only emitted that HD signal and it was received on this traditional television set and part of the picture was cut off it actually didn't hurt the viewer experience and we tested across all the different sports genres that were out there we tested all sorts of advertisements and across the board there was no hurt there was no harmful impact of them just changing to this one stream so by that one research study they were able to shut off that sd transmission and save the company millions of dollars a year by only transmitting the HD stream. And they actually did follow-up research after the fact to make sure that the results held, and it did. So they had validation after the fact that they made the right decision and, and the research we did actually you know, was correct. Um, so I know that's not a single headline, but it was a huge impact to the industry. And then you saw other networks following their lead and started doing the same thing. So it was, it's a behind the scenes change that not everyone would have actually known that that was happening, but it was a huge change to the industry. I mean, when you think about, um, again, flipping back to academics like me, where if three people have read what I've published, then I'm super jazzed. And you think about what you just said in terms of yeah, um, the difference that it made for ESPN and the millions of dollars that you save them. I mean, it's remarkable. And now I feel like I've got to do something <laughs> that's a little more meaningful. <laughs> No, but that's also one of the the amazing things. You know, we were talking about like how you don't have to deal with ethics committees or IRB. You also have the ability to change the world, you know, in a more 
direct way, you know, mm-hmm. without waiting mm-hmm. for, you know, five people to read your article and then 10 people cite it. And then, uh, you know, over the mm-hmm. years, it becomes famous. And then you get to write a book chapter about it. <laughs> where, you know, some of the stuff we're doing is it's changing the way people watch TV on a daily basis. And it's, it's cool. <laughs> it is so So, Amy, you mentioned that you um, present research at conferences, at industry conferences. And what I'm I'm curious about is do those conferences kind of look like a traditional academic conference where you're presenting for 15 minutes or you have a panel or a poster? Um, And then I'm also curious about what you're actually allowed to present. Um, do companies that you work with just say, yeah, present all of our findings? Um, do you own the data? Do the companies own the data? How does that work? Yeah, yeah. So that's a it's a really good question. The conferences themselves are structured very similarly to academic conferences. Um, so you have, you know, different types of sessions that cover different topics. You sometimes have panel discussions about, you know, hot industry topics where you have experts weigh in. Um, we don't have, don't typically see posters. I think that's probably one of the things that would be missing, um, like poster sessions. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the presentations themselves active. Um, sometimes people do raise their hands and ask questions. But one of the most shocking things I realized when I went to you know probably my first and second industry conference is how nice everyone was and how supportive <laughs> everyone was at wow. these presentations. Because, you know, in, at academic conferences, it's like there's people in the audience who have to prove that they know more than you, mm-hmm. um, you yeah. know, about whatever it is you're presenting on. Or they need to poke holes in your research, you know, to mm-hmm. show you all the flaws, which, you know, there's benefits to some of that discussion, but sometimes it's not done in a nice way. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in one of these industry sessions. It was one of the first ones I had attended. And the research the guy was presenting was terrible. I mean, just, <laughs> it was like his methodology was horrible. He didn't control for things he should have controlled for. And I'm the newbie, kind of young professionals. And I'm looking around at the audience and just shock at everybody. And I'm like, is no one going to raise their hand and point this stuff out? And I was, you know, too petrified to say anything because I felt like it wasn't my place because I was new. And I remember going to, you know, my boss and Veron, he's the CEO of our company. And I'm like, Dwayne, you wouldn't believe what happened. You know, this guy presented this stuff and it was horrible and nobody said anything. And he's like, yeah, people are usually pretty supportive at, the, at these events. <laughs> and I was like, what? What? Why? I don't understand. And, you know, and since then I've done several presentations and, and it's, it's great. You know, you've got, you've got competitors that are there who are competitors to us you know, if you're with a media client, they may have their competitors there and they're sharing information with each other to help drive the industry forward, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me, you know, that, that they, even though they're competing with each other for success, they're still helping each other succeed in, the, in, in this industry. Um, and that's pretty neat. You know, the collaboration that you see is pretty remarkable and granted, you know, that everybody still keeps their best secrets close to their best, you know, so they're not going to present everything. Mm-hmm. And if they've got some sort of secret formula figured out, they're sure as heck not going to share that with everyone else. Um, but you know, once they've utilized some of the research and gotten their benefit out of it, they do share it, you know, with the, with the rest of the industry and it helps position them as an industry leader as well. Mm. Yeah, so there's benefit that way. Um, but in terms of 
how we, we do submit um, proposals, you know, similar to academic conferences. Sometimes they get rejected and sometimes they don't. Um, we usually have better luck if we're presenting a at one of our clients. So if it is client research mm-hmm. and they approve sharing it, which is hard because a lot of it's proprietary research that we do not have permission to share. Um, and I would say the majority of what we do falls in that bucket. But sometimes if it's something that makes them look good and will help them sell more advertising, then it is something they want to share. And those are the things that we typically are you know, presenting at these industry conferences, or if it's something that's just you know, helping share general knowledge about some sort of trend that's happening um, or something that, you know, that, that advertisers are interested in and doing. And, you know, those are things that, that get permission to share. Hmm. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit um, and, and ask you this, this very deep question. Uh, <laughs> what are your professional career? What are you most proud of? the impact that we have industry in general. Um, So, you know, like I was explaining before, there are studies that we can, that our clients take that information and they change the way they're doing something or they implement something new because we said this works. Mm -hmm. And then when I turn on the TV and see that, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's extremely rewarding, you know, to know that, that our research has impact. And I mean, you know, in one sense, we're not making the world a better place. You know, we're not saving lives <laughs> or doing anything like that. But media are huge, you know, and yeah. that's a huge part yeah. of our everyday lives. And everyone is impacted by the different devices that we have. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're, we're able to help shape and change the messages that come through that, you know, it's pretty remarkable. That's yeah, really remarkable for sure. Um, my goodness, I feel like I can almost have a therapy se- session right now with my media use and what it all <laughs> means and the messaging. <laughs> um, but what we're going to do is shift gears on you again. Um, when you were at UA, I know you had an opportunity to overlap with Dr. Jennings Bryant. And I was wondering if you have a great Jennings story that you wanted to share, um, or if you wanted to talk about a class that you might have taken with him or anything like that. I probably have lots of things that I could share, (laughs) but I want to share two things. Okay. (laughs) Um, one, which was one of the most eye-opening conversations I've ever had in a hallway. Um, (laughs) so I read this article and at the time I was doing research on video games and this was during my PhD. Um, I was really interested in media effects inspired by Dr. Bryant's media effects class, probably. Um, but I read this article where someone had tested, they had monitored EEG, you know, so brain activity while someone was playing video games. And that was the first time that had ever been published. And I was like, that is cool. You know, I want to do that. I want to learn how to use that equipment. And I want to learn how to do that. So I see Dr. Bryant in the hallway. And I'm like, Dr. Bryant, I read this amazing article. I want to learn more about this. Is there a class I can take? You know, is there anything that anybody teaches here at, at University of Alabama on this topic? And he said, no, there's not. And he said, but you don't have to take a class to become an expert in something. You just have to dive into it. Mm. And I just stood there in shock. And I was like, oh, my God, like my whole life, I've been trained to take classes and things to become expert in them. You know, Mm. that's how you learn is you take a class, you enroll in a class. And I was like, you're right. Like, all I have to do is just find all the literature I can find and just read it and learn it. And Mm. that was 
it was so eye-opening because it made me realize that all of these things that I'm interested in, I don't have to have someone else teach me. I can mm-hmm. go learn those things myself just by diving into that area. And I feel like anyone can do that. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's that's my first Jennings story. So that was <laughs> pretty transformational in, in terms of just changing my mindset on, on learning. Certainly. Certainly. <clears throat> um, and then the second one. So Dr. Bryant was on my dissertation committee along with Dr. Bissell. Mm-hmm. And um, he, so we had a good relationship and I would go to his office often, you know, to talk and get advice and everything. And he asked me one day um, if I would be interested in, in meeting one of his former students who ran a research center at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. And he said, it's the Interactive Television Research Institute. And, and he runs this research center. It's based in Australia. And um, he might be coming here to, to do a guest speaker role. I was like, oh, my God, that sounds like a dream job. Like you're working only doing research, not having to teach any classes. <laughs> Andy lives in Australia. Like that sounds amazing. I'm like, yes, I want to meet favorite person. And little did I know that this was Dr. Dwayne Veron, who is now my boss and the CEO of, of Media Science. Um, he was a former student of Dr. Bryant, and he had reached out to him looking for new researchers to join him at the research center there. And Dr. Bryant had recommended me and yeah. And I had no idea that it was was like all secretive. So he came and did a presentation (laughs) and we went out for coffee after and and Dwayne asked me, he's like, so what are you doing your dissertation work on? I said, oh, probably something with video games. And he said, no, no, no. How about, (laughs) (laughs) how about you do something that I help you pick the topic. It has to do with advertising. So it's still one of your areas and I will fund your research and you can come to Australia to collect the data. And I, I didn't even hesitate. And I'm like, deal. <laughs> I will do it. And I didn't. And then I called my husband and I'm like, we're going to be going to Australia. <laughs> and he's like, okay. So like, luckily I've got a supportive husband along this whole journey. But, um, you know, so that was how I, I ended up doing my dissertation research at Dwayne's Research Center, you know, and this was all, all doing by Dr. Bryant. Um, you know, he, he arranged all of this, but I did my dissertation research. Then I was offered the postdoc. And then the opportunity came up for us to start this new company called Media Science. And that was back in 2008. And Dwayne asked me if I wanted to live in Austin, Texas instead. And I said, sure, that sounds fun too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I like to follow opportunities when they come up. But, um, But it's funny because where I am today, you know, so this is 13 years later after our company started and, you know, even more years since that, that initial conversation, but where I am today in my career would not have happened had Dr. Bryant not made that connection. If Mm -hmm. he had not said, you know what, Amy Rask is a good person you should talk to about that researcher role, then I have no idea where I would be. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, very important and very, very important role in where I am. I think that's definitely the things that we're hearing over the conversations we've had thus far, you know, like one conversation in the hallway or just one um, connection that's been made um, has, has really kind of changed people's lives in, in really big ways. So it's kind of not surprising to hear this from (laughs) you as well. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So, Amy, we're going to wrap it up um, by asking, um, uh, uh, post-pandemic, um, 
we all look forward to things like conferences. Um, do you have a, an industry conference that's a favorite? Um, and where are you looking forward to going next? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So the Advertising Research Foundation probably has all of my favorite conferences. Um, I think, I don't think they're going back in person anytime soon. I do know that we are planning on presenting in October at one of their conferences. And I just found out today that that's virtual. Mm. Um, so, you know, that being said, you know, I, I enjoyed the virtual conferences. I do think they're more powerful in person because you get to make those connections and have those conversations in the hallway, you know, that could be pivotal mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, at least we, we have a proxy for that, you know, at least we get to do something virtually and it actually makes it easier for some people to attend that normally can't travel, you know, or, you know, they have other obligations. So I think there's pros and cons of both, but, um, but definitely the advertising research foundation events are, are my favorite. And, and I have to ask one other question that is not related to research or at all. Is, <laughs> when you travel, can you leave your 32 chickens? <laughs> <laughs> so luckily I have a very supportive husband and two amazing children that are pretty self-sufficient <laughs> and uh, they're very good at taking care of our little farm when, I, when I'm not here. <laughs> Amy, it has been such a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I I think it's going to be really fun for our listeners because you're our first um, non-academic industry researcher guest that we've had so far, and this has just been fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Bye. Bye.